The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, well, it is uh, it's truly great to be back with y'all. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, I was out. Man, I woke up two Sundays ago and did not get out of bed for like a week. So I woke up with a fever and it was just, I had the flu. I've had flu-like symptoms before, but never had the flu. It is the worst, man. So here's the lesson. Get your flu shot, right? Um, that's, that's what I've learned. Uh, so feeling good, glad to be back with y'all and, and uh, sharing God's word with you today. And I also just do want to say thanks for your prayers and uh, for uh, anyone who carried extra weight for our church while I was out. Thanks for doing that. In particular, uh, to both Adam and Pastor Barrett, who uh, pinched hit on very late notice uh, the last two Sundays, uh, which is actually kind of amazing. You may not realize this, but a sermon takes usually like a minimum of 10 hours to prep. Uh, I called Adam two Sundays ago at 7 in the morning and said, you're up, buddy. Uh, and, and then I called Barrett last Saturday at like 5 o'clock p.m. and said, you're up. So uh, they were very gracious to, to step in and do that. Um, so anyways, we are going to continue our series, The Good Life. Uh, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and we're calling this series The Good Life because Ecclesiastes is about teaching us uh, how to live a wise life. And, and a wise life is really about having the ability to navigate life well. And so we've said wisdom really consists of three things. That wisdom is about being the right kind of person who makes the right kind of decisions because they've considered the right kind of questions. Right? Wisdom is being the right kind of person who makes the right kind of decisions because they've considered the right kind of questions. And so as I was uh, laid up, I was, I was thinking about, like, what do I mean by that? What do we mean when we say the right kind of questions? What are the right kind of questions? Well, let me uh, give an illustration to kind of get us into that. So uh, the, the great writer, uh, G.K. Chesterton, he said, you know, we, we all recognize that there's problems in our world, right? We all recognize that there's things that are broken, that aren't working, that, that are messed up. And he said, when, usually, though, when we attempt to fix that in the contemporary world, he said, we make what he calls a medical mistake, a medical mistake. And so let me just uh, illustrate what, what he meant by that. So uh, I don't know if you all have noticed uh, but, but this year in our country uh, is an election year. Anyone notice that? Okay, right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an election year. And, and, of course, what happens is, you know, a politician gets up front and says, hey, our, our, our country's messed up. There's, there's problems going on. They say, hey, we're sick. Things are broken. And if you support me, you vote for me, support my policies, I'll get us healthy. I'll get us healthy. I'll get us to where we're supposed to be. Right? That's generally just what politicians do. That's fine. Uh, and Chesterton says, though, this is where we make the medical mistake. And he says, here's the issue. If, if you were to uh, go to the hospital, every physician, every doctor would look at a patient and they all agree on what a healthy patient looks like. They all agree on what a healthy body looks like. But they may disagree on what the diagnosis is. They may disagree on what the treatment is to get the body healthy. But they're all on the same page. They all have the same vision of what a healthy person is. And so Chesterton says... Here's our struggle in the contemporary world. Everyone knows that we're sick. Everyone knows that something's wrong. But we don't, no one can agree on what a healthy society would look like. No one can agree on what a healthy world would look like. No one can agree on what a healthy individual looks like, right? And so in many ways, Chesterton's point is that our struggles in our society come down to our inability to determine that which is good. How should things actually be? There isn't a common vision of what healthy looks like. 
And so to me, that leads us to actually a really good question. How would we answer that? Like, what would that look like? How do we define what a healthy society looks like, what a healthy individual would look like? Extending that metaphor. And now, if you're a good Christian, uh, you say, well, God defines that, right? And he does. That's true. Good answer. And that's all well and good, but I, I do think for many of us, before we begin to even attempt to answer that for society at large, we actually need to ask ourselves the question, what does it look like for me to live before God? What does it look like for me to be healthy before God, to extend that metaphor? And so in our text for today, the author of Ecclesiastes, he calls himself Koheleth, is asking that question. He says, how do I live before God? And he gives us kind of a three-part answer to that. He says, you live before God with an attitude of obedience, with reverence in practice, and with simplicity in approach. Okay, so you live before God well with an attitude of obedience, reverence in practice, and simplicity in approach. All right? Uh, So let's get into it. An attitude of obedience. If you look with me at our first verse in our text for today, uh, we'll have it up on the screen. It says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. All right, so Koheleth, the author of Ecclesiastes, says, hey, when when you think of yourself before God, when you approach God, he says, guard your steps. In other words, be smart about it. He's saying, don't just carelessly, cavalierly go before God. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, he answers that. He says, uh, when you draw near to God, draw near to listen to him. Draw near to listen. And the word for, for listen there is the word uh, lishmoa, lishmoa. And it doesn't just mean like to hear. Uh, it actually it means to understand. So he's saying, hey, as, as you approach God, be smart about it and go with the posture of looking to understand what God is actually saying and then act according to it. So I remember when I was uh, just like, first starting to, to teach the Bible and preach and that sort of thing, and I was, I was still in seminary, uh, but I was, I was speaking at a, a camp in northern Wisconsin, and, uh, and I, I was just teaching on, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so I just kind of go through this whole thing, Jesus' sermon in, in Matthew and in Luke, and, and, I, and I teach through the Sermon on the Mount, and afterwards, uh, this guy comes up to me, uh, this like big, burly, Northwoodsy guy wearing like eight flannels, and, and he just says, uh, he goes, hey, preacher, and I was like, yep. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and he said, uh, "Hey, uh, I, I liked what you said." And I said, "Oh, well, well, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm I'm glad to hear that." And he said, uh, "Yeah, there was a lot of good advice you gave. I may take some of it." And I remember, like after he said that, I felt really weird about it because I was like, "Like it wasn't advice, bro." You know, like, like I, I was trying to teach you the words of God. Like, it's not kind of like a, a take it or leave it option, you know? Now, of course, when someone's preaching or teaching, we always want to be discerning when they're talking about what God's word says and when it's just the, the person up front doing it. But I think this guy's sentiment captures the way that some folks approach Scripture, that some folks approach what God would say to us. That you can kind of just take or leave what you like and what you don't like. 
And in this text, Kohelet is saying, hey, don't do that. He says, when you draw near to God, it, it isn't so you can get his input and evaluate it based on what you want to do anyways. It's so you can hear him, understand what he's saying, and act accordingly. It's about having an attitude of obedience. And so that's why he says in the next line, he says, don't offer the sacrifice of fools. You say, well, what's the sacrifice of fools? Well, in the Old Testament, kind of a consistent theme of what that means is to take part in religious activity and not really believe it. To take part in the the rituals of, of some sort of religious activity, but not really have your heart in it. To not really have any meaning behind it. To not really believe in what's going on. And can I tell you something? There's actually a very real danger in Central Texas. It's a very real danger in Central Texas. I remember uh, when we were getting this church up and running. Uh, we, we weren't meeting yet publicly for worship, but we were just in the process of, of getting together. And uh, I was in a coffee shop, and I met a lady, and, and her and I started talking. And, and I shared with her about the church. And uh, she actually happened to be a Christian, but wasn't part of a, a local church. And she was actually even part of the denomination that we were a part of. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, cool. Well, you know, feel free to join us. We'd love to have you be a part of it. And she goes, oh, awesome. You know, what, what time do y'all worship? And I said, oh, well, you know, we're not, we're not worshiping publicly yet. I said, we're, uh, we're just meeting in homes and serving right now. Uh, but you're, you're more than welcome to join us with that. And I remember, like, her face just, like, dropped. And she just sort of, like, patted me on the head and was like, well, you just let me know when you get worship services up and running. And then she just turned away and didn't talk to me. And I don't mean to like pick on this lady because being a part of the early stages of a church plant is not super fun. It's not super attractive, okay? But her reaction there really opened my eyes to the sort of cultural Christianity that's just sort of abundant here. It's kind of this mentality, right? You guys have seen it, where it's kind of like, yeah, God and church, Christianity, it kind of, you know, it goes together with mom's apple pie and baseball and America, and we just kind of all just lump that all together, and it's just kind of a good thing to do with your khaki pants on, right? Like, like we just sort of lump it together. It's what the great writer Flannery O'Connor called the Christ-haunted American South. That just sort of floats there. And so there's a very real temptation in our context to just sort of put on the face of religious activity, of religious devotion without any sincerity to it. But the author of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet here, says, hey, don't do that. He says, don't offer the sacrifice of fools. He even says that doing that is evil. I remember talking with a friend of mine uh, who's a, a Lutheran Christian, like myself, and, and, and uh, uh, he shared something that was like pretty against a core conviction of Christianity. And he's like, yeah, this is kind of where I stand on that. And I was like, bro, that's kind of, you know, not what we believe. And he just goes, yeah, well, I don't really believe all that stuff. I'm just sort of culturally Lutheran. And I thought, well, that's going to stand up well with God. Like, he'll be all right with you saying that, right? Well, he was culturally that way, so it's fine. I mean, that's crazy, right? Just being culturally Christian is, is nonsense. Like, just this last week, a little girl in the Middle East was burned alive by ISIS for being a Christian. And her last words in her mom's arms were, forgive them. Okay, that's the kind of authenticity that Koheleth is talking about here. 
It's not, well, hey, you know, I grew up in the church and it's just kind of a good thing, so I guess I'll stick around. Or, hey, it's, it's good for my kids to be a part of this, to get some sort of moral framework in their life, so we'll be a part of it. Or, or it keeps my wife happy, so I'll just kind of show up when I'm supposed to. That's nonsense. It's the sacrifice of fools. Kohela says, you come before God. You come before him with an attitude of obedience. You come before him with complete surrender of your life. And as you approach God with an attitude of obedience, that's going to lead to reverence in practice. Look with me at verses 2, 4, and 6. We're doing even numbers today in our text. It says this, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So after saying have an attitude of obedience... Koheleth, the author of Ecclesiastes, talks about a few practices. And in verse 2, we'll go back to that, he talks about prayer. And then in verse 4, he talks about having integrity before God. And then in verse 6, he talks about having integrity before people. And all of this, all these practices, he couches in having reverence for God. Uh, So let me say this. One of the weird things, I guess, about being me uh, and being a pastor is I'm kind of like inherently an irreverent guy. Like I just am like, it's just like, I was in a punk band for eight years, you know, like that's just like the nature of who I am. Like I just have a hard time taking things really seriously. Uh, And this is actually rubbed off on on my little boy on Titus, uh, which is normally fine, right? Like he and I are just a couple goofy guys together. We joke around. We have a lot of fun. But uh, when I put him to bed at night, you know, he and I pray. And, and so the way we do that is, is I'll pray, and then I ask him to pray. And uh, lately, uh, his prayers have been getting kind of silly. You know, a lot of Star Wars thrown in there, this sort of thing. And, and so I'll just say, hey, you know, Titus, it's, it's okay uh, to be silly. It's, it's okay for us to be silly. But, you know, when we're talking to Jesus, uh, we, really, we really don't want to be too, ser- too silly because Jesus is really important. And we, we really want to speak uh, with respect to Jesus and, and, and for who he is. And so this, this is like just what I was thinking about when I was reading verse 2. If you can go back to that for me, Sarah. Uh, is, is verse 2. This is what he's getting at. Is he's saying, hey, when, when you talk to God, when you approach God in prayer... Take it seriously. Prayer is not just some empty ritual. And he says, why? Because, uh, because God is in heaven and you are on earth. In other words, he says, hey, when you talk to God, recognize that he's got a bigger perspective than you, that he's seeing things differently than you, that he sees things further than you could see. And so don't spend your time wasting a bunch of words trying to twist his arm to see things the way you want him to see them. Pray according to his will. Trust what he's going to do best. It isn't just some empty ritual. Couch your, couch your prayer in reverence. And then verse 4, you see, it says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. Now, that sentence maybe sounds a little weird to us, 
because I think about like vowing a vow to God, and I don't know about you, but like the image that comes to my mind is if, I don't know if you guys have ever had this, where you're in some moment where like you think you're going to die for whatever reason, you're like sick, or you know, maybe one of you sinners drank too much, or something like that, and, uh, and, and you just, you say, um, you say, God, if you get me out of this, you know, I'll, I'll never swear again, right? Or you get me out of this, I'll only watch PG movies. You know, whatever it is, right? Like, you make some sort of nonsense promise like that. Does anyone ever do that? No one. All right, fine. Guess it's just me. Um, at any rate, wait a minute, let me ask this. Anyone ever do that in college? Okay, there it is. All right. Um, at any rate, that's not what this is talking about. That's not what this is talking about. That's the image I get in my head, but that's not what it's talking about. That's mostly just silliness, okay? This is talking about the idea of a vow. The word vow there is actually a vow of sacrifice. It's talking about vowing a sacrifice to God. And so in ancient Israel, the idea would have been like, hey, beginning of the year, guy says, well, I raise sheep for a living. And he says, so the best lamb that I have this year, I'm going to sacrifice that to God. And so what Koheleth is saying, he's saying, hey, if you say that, if you commit to doing that, do it. Have integrity before God. And so then the same is true for us as Christians. That when we think of the things that God has given us, and we say, hey, I'm going to give of what you've given me to God. I'm going to sacrifice to you, God. He says, do it. Fulfill your vow. And so as Christians, we're called to care for the, the poor and the needy in our community and in the world. So he says, do it. And we're called to advance the gospel in our community and in the world. So he says, do it. Support those efforts. Don't just talk about it. He says, do it out of reverence for God. Have integrity before him. That's what he's getting at here. And then verse 6, he says, all right, not only should you have integrity before God, but verse 6, he says, you'd have integrity before others, before other people, before the local body of believers. So he says, hey, don't let your mouth get you into trouble. Don't say to the messenger that it was a mistake. So the, the word messenger there is actually alluding to um, the priest in the temple. That it was, it was the, the leader of, of the local body of believers, so the priest in the temple. And so he's saying, hey, don't, don't talk to the priest and say, hey, I know I committed to doing this, to being a part of this sort of thing, uh, but I actually, I misspoke. I shouldn't have said that. I'm actually, I'm not going to be able to do that. He says, don't do that. He says, have integrity before God. Have integrity before your brothers and sisters in the family of God. In other words, what he's getting at here is be a contributor, not a consumer. When it comes to being part of the people of God, be a contributor, not a consumer. Don't just take and take from the local body of, of believers, from people, but actually commit to serve others. Commit to be a part of what God's doing through his people. Actually show up, deliver on your word. Out of reverence before God, he says, have integrity before others. Now, I realize, like, I'm hitting it pretty hard this morning, all right? Hammering hard today. And that's for two reasons. One... I didn't preach for two weeks, so I got like a lot built up, right? Like I just got to let it all out. Um, and so, so that's one. Uh, but secondly, though, is, is what this text is doing, what it's really driving at is it's opening our eyes to something. And what this text is opening our eyes to is that one of the biggest damages that sin inflicts in our world is it turns our relationships from being intimacy-focused to consumption-focused. 
One of the biggest damages that sin inflicts in our world is it turns our relationships from being intimacy-focused to being consumption-focused. That One of the damages of sin is it leads us to treat people as objects for our consumption, for our betterment, as opposed to people for us to love. Which, by the way, is why pornography, for example, is so absolutely destructive. But this treating people as objects is much further reaching than obvious sins like that. See, whenever we engage people, whenever you engage people, only insofar as you can get something from them, whenever you engage someone, only insofar as they advance your agenda, only insofar as they help you get where you want to go in life, whenever you do that, you start treating people as objects instead of as people, and the results of that are devastating. But here's the thing. Not only does sin lead us to treat other people as objects for our consumption, but it actually leads us to treat God as an object for our consumption. And so instead of engaging God as a living being who's actually alive and active in our lives and in this world, like right now, like now, we end up treating him as some sort of far-off, distant vending machine that we just want to show up when we want him to and to stay away when we don't want him to. And so that's why Koheleth is hammering on this living with reverence before God so hard. That's why he's hammering on having an obedience, uh, an attitude of obedience so hard because God is not just some far-off being waiting to be your vending machine whenever you want to call on him. What he wants us to see is that God is real. That he's living. And the amazing thing is that he actually wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be in relationship with you, a real one. He doesn't want you just showing up to church once in a while because, ah, you feel kind of guilty, but you show up and you punch the forgiveness button and you feel a lot better. He doesn't want to just be your ticket to heaven. He doesn't just want to be this, uh, the, this manipulative person who where you do good things, then he's going to bless you, and if you don't, then he won't bless you. He's not operating that way. God is not an object for you to use for your personal gain. God is desiring to be in relationship with you, to know you. He's real, he's living, and he wants to be in relationship with you. Look with me at verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So this section of text here, what we're looking at this morning, concludes with Koheleth saying this. Listen, your, your empty religious practice, he says that's vanity. He says it's meaningless. He says, but God is the one you must fear. Now, if you grew up in the church, uh, you know the, the command to, uh, to fear God uh, is pretty common throughout the Bible, right? And when we talk about it, usually what happens is, some guy like me up here says, well, fear God, you know, really what that means is to have reverence for God, uh, which is true, and it is. But I, I've always sort of struggled with that definition because it doesn't feel big enough to me, right? Like, I can have reverence for a person, right? Like, I, someone who I really admire or look up to, I'll, I'll have reverence for them, and I feel like something for God, it's got it's to be bigger than that. Uh, and so I, I was studying up on this, and, and I came across this definition of what it means to fear God that has really helped me think about it in, in a better way. 
And this is the definition. Uh, to fear God is to stand in awe of him. To fear God is to stand in awe of God. And so I love this. Kohela says, hey, you want to live before God well? Keep your approach simple. Just stand in awe of him. Stand in awe of who he is and what he's done. Just stand in awe of him. When I think of things that I stand in awe of, I think of the time when I backpacked through Zion National Park and all the sights I got to see. And I think of sunsets I've seen over Lake Michigan. And I think of volcanoes I got to climb in Guatemala and the, the landscape that, that you see from up there. And I think of pieces of art and film and, and music that have moved me in some profound way. And what all those things have in common, all those things I stand in awe of, what they all have in common is that I want to go back to them again and again and again. I want to experience them again and again. See, friends, the, the living God, the God who actually is, who's actually present, wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to come back to him again and again and again, to be before his presence again and again and again. See, like, like this is why Jesus came. Like, think about this. Like, like Jesus came to this earth fully God fully man. He went to the cross. He rose again. And on the cross, he paid the price for all your sins. Why? To bring you into a right relationship with God. See, I think so often when we think of God simply as an object, as the guy who's punching our forgiveness ticket or who's our ticket to heaven or whatever we want, when we think of him simply as an object, we start to think that Jesus came into this world to make you feel better about you. He didn't. He came into this world to bring you into a relationship with God. To bring you into intimacy with the Almighty. That you might come before God again and again and stand in awe. So, um, May 5th was not too long ago. It's a, a holiday some people celebrate called Cinco de Mayo. Uh, hey, all right. Love it. Uh, it is also uh, just as exciting as that, uh, the, uh, the birthday of the uh, Danish existentialist philosopher, uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, so while you pagans may have been say, celebrating Cinco de Mayo, I was celebrating Cinco de Soren and, uh, and did some, uh, some reading up on him. And, uh, and he tells this, by the way, if you're new here, I like say pagans and say it like, I'm just kidding, okay? So like just, uh, all right, moving along. Um, so anyways, uh, I was reading up on him, and, and Soren Kierkegaard, he tells this parable about how Jesus um, is, about how Jesus brings us into a loving relationship with God. And he really unpacks this, and I think it's just a, a beautiful way to think about it. So he says, this is how the parable works. He says, suppose there's two artists. He says, say the first artist works like this. And the first artist says, hey, you know, I, I've been around the world. I've traveled many places. I've seen hundreds of thousands of faces, hundreds of thousands of people. And, and the artist says, I got to tell you, I haven't found a single person worth painting. Because every time I think I've found someone and I look at them closely, I see that they've got flaws. That stuff isn't right. And so they're just not beautiful enough 
for me to paint. And the second artist says, you know, I, I haven't traveled as much as you, uh, and I've really just got this small circle of friends. But he says, I, I, I got to tell you, I've never found a face so insignificant or so full of faults that I couldn't find some beauty to pull out of them, that I couldn't help but paint them. And then Kierkegaard then points out that the true artist is the second one, right? Because he's the one who brings out the beauty in, in his subjects. And then Kierkegaard says this. Let me read this quote to you. Would it not be sad to, if what is intended to beautify life could only be a curse upon it, so that art, instead of making life beautiful, beautiful for us, only fastidiously discovers that not one of us is beautiful? Would it not be sadder still, and still more confusing, if love also should be only a curse, because its demand could only make it evident that none of us is worth loving? Instead of love's being recognized precisely by its loving enough to be able to find some lovableness in all of us, consequently loving enough to be able to love all of us. Now I realize this philosopher says so words are all sort of weird, okay? So this is what he's saying. He says, see friends, the reality is we're not always that lovable. We're not always that lovable. We don't always live before God well. We don't always have an attitude of obedience. We don't always practice reverence before God. But in Jesus Christ, God has sought you out. In Jesus Christ, God has brought you into a loving relationship with him. And so what Kierkegaard is saying here is that in Jesus Christ, God has made you lovable. He's brought that beauty out. He's called you in to a loving relationship with him. And so won't you just stand in awe of that love that he has for you? Won't you go to it again and again and again? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. God, I pray for my friends, for those gathered here that maybe feel far from you, maybe don't sense your love right now. And God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the great love you have for them in Jesus, that they'd live in awe of that love, that they'd come back to it again and again and again. And God, teach us to live in relationship with you. Teach us to have attitudes of obedience. Teach us to follow you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.